Hi, everyone. This is Charting Queer Health, the podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Harvard Brown Health in Chicago, I'm your host, Matt. I am a cis white gay man who is a recent Chicago trans boy, and I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is David Ernesto Munyar. David, would you like to introduce uh, yourself and your title and your pronouns? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, I use he, him pronouns. And what do you do here? I'm president and CEO. I've been at the helm since 2014. Wonderful. Um, Have you always uh, worked in the healthcare field or how did you kind of land uh, working for Howard Brown? I've had a 30 year career in nonprofit work, most of which was at the AIDS Foundation of Chicago, where I worked for 23 years prior to coming here to Howard Brown. And at AIDS Foundation, I had eight different jobs, mostly in public policy mm-hmm. and communications, but also a senior vice president. In the last three years at AIDS Foundation, I was CEO. Gotcha. Okay, so you've always kind of been working in the, the nonprofit um, area, kind of helping people. Um, I, I kind of want to pick your brain today uh, on a broad level and then maybe a little bit more specifically about what makes Howard Brown unique, kind of uh, what Howard Brown is and how it, what it's not, uh, how it relates to the state of healthcare in the United States, sure. kind of uh, how that relates to our plan going forward, given the pandemic, all sorts of things. So um, it might be broad, might be uh, some big questions, but uh, it should be a good time. Fantastic. So let's start off with a question that I learned right upon joining, or a question that I had right upon joining Howard Brown is, what is a federally qualified health center? We are a federally qualified health center, Howard Brown is, but uh, for those that are listening, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? Yeah, it's an accreditation that nonprofits can secure by going through an application process with the federal government and showing that they're prepared to meet a whole set of requirements to identify the unmet health needs of a geographic community. So you have to propose a census track mm-hmm. and document the health disparities in that area. So levels of poverty, health disparities in different disease states, levels of uninsured, things like that. And then you demonstrate your capabilities to respond to that need. So it's a difficult designation to achieve. Mm. Organizations like Howard Brown are nonprofit organizations that receive that designation, but we're we're not, and we receive financial support from the federal government, but we're, and we're extensions of the federal safety net, but we're not federal. So it's a little complicated. Yeah. The the kind of the hallmark of federally qualified health centers for patients that are really important are the following. So as a federally qualified health center, uh, nobody, no patient is turned away from care for inability to pay. So this is actually revolutionary and Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anywhere else in the healthcare system in our country. And what that means is though we collect insurance and though we help people identify marketplace plans or Medicaid if they're eligible or other options, our first imperative is to help people gain access to care. So if somebody's uninsured, our, you know, the first thing we're going to do is try to see if we can help them establish insurance somewhere 
for their own benefit, but we're going to see them in care. We're going to meet their, their presenting needs. And so nobody's turned away from inability to pay, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then the second, um, for those patients that are 200, whose annual income is 200% of poverty or below, uh, which is just under 25,000 annual income for a family of one, mm-hmm. those, uh, those individuals can qualify for a sliding scale. And so that means that the, their services at Howard Brown will, every time they come to Howard Brown, they would incur a per visit charge, which is based on income. So it's anywhere between $5 and $25. Gotcha. And that's a charge. Mm-hmm. So we urge people to, you know, either pay that or pay down their balances if they can. But nobody's turned away from care for inability to pay. So the first rule continues. And then the last is because we're a federally funded entity, we can receive prescription medications at a deep discount. And for uninsured patients, we extend that discount onto our patients who are uninsured. So it doesn't eliminate their prescription costs, but it can dramatically reduce the costs anywhere from 30% to 70% off kind of the cost they would see without the discount. Right. Um, that's an excellent explanation. And it, it brings up a lot of uh, questions in that, like offering healthcare to people, regardless of their ability to pay, obviously feels like it should be the standard. But for the state of healthcare in America, healthcare prices are skyrocketing. And especially with uh, insurance or people who are uninsured, there's a lack of ability to pay for it. So as a layman and somebody who's new to the healthcare industry, is it a ridiculous idea to think that the model that federally qualified health care centers um, have is maybe applicable on a larger scale to the healthcare industry? Like, is there anything that we can learn from federally qualified health centers to kind of alleviate this lack of care on a broader scale? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, Matt. You know, the, you know so there's thousands of federally qualified health centers across the country. There's 51 in Illinois and 11 in Chicago. We're all doing similar activities, you know, trying to provide primary care for people who are insured or uninsured. It's high quality and accessible and low cost. And really, we're the only part of the system that has this setup where nobody's turned away for inability to pay. You know, the way we, you know, we do that, we receive revenue from all these sources, including federal sources, Medicaid, insurance, grants, individual contributions. And then we're delivering care for those who are insured, but we're also subsidizing millions of dollars of free or dis, you know, kind of deeply discounted care mm-hmm. every year. And so it's this careful you know, um, juggling that we do to try to provide that level of assistance to the community it's the only place in the American healthcare system where something like that really occurs. So, um, so it is a model, and the and the feds in the last ten years have really dramatically increased funding for federally qualified health centers, and it and it is an opportunity to to grow that sector. It would be phenomenal if we continue to see more investment in these kinds of organizations because, you know, there are a lot of people that you know lose insurance or are caught between insurance or struggle to meet their premiums, you know, all sorts of challenges. 
or they or have uh, substandard insurance. So they may have catastrophic coverage, but which will help them if they're in an accident. But in terms of getting primary care or routine care, it's of little benefit mm-hmm. and has high out-of-pocket costs. So in terms of what Howard Brown does and doesn't do, um, we're primary care providers. So um, emergency, things like that, Howard Brown is unfortunately at this time can't help with. And then, because I'm, I'm just oh, still even getting acquainted with the scope of, of everything that we offer surgeries wise, like let's say, um, you know, I have a, a, a health condition or a concern with cancer or something, Howard Brown can help with that or at least subsidize the cost if it's not something that they can help with. So, yeah, so, so our service lines are kind of the primary service line is primary care. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a primary care provider can, you know, review with a patient and help them with their day-to-day healthcare needs. If, you know, there's, if, if something um, in that provision of care demonstrates that they need access to a specialist, like a cardiologist or, you know, all sorts of specialism, we can help refer them into, the, into, a, into to a specialist. And, you know, it depends on, you know, in some cases we can help cover some of those costs if they're on the sliding scale, for example. Mm-hmm. In other cases, that would just be however they are planned, if it's an HMO or PPO, would cover those, gotcha. those costs. We, we're outpatient, so we don't do any... You know, admitting we don't we have no um, overnight stays at beds, Howard Brown. So to speak, yeah. So, but primary care is our main mm-hmm. kind of service line. We also do walk-in sexual health clinic, which is for STI screening, pregnancy testing, and you know any treatment that may be needed in for for sexual health. And we provide behavioral health services as well as dental care. So those are our, our primary service lines. We also around all of these programs is kind of a deep bench of social services to help people navigate some of the obstacles uh, like transportation, food, housing, legal assistance, or or other needs that end up creating obstacles for people to get access to care. Yeah. You mentioned that deep bench of, of other assistance that we offer people. And that was something I was blown away by as I've been learning about the organization in my time here of that and even with the other guests I've had on the podcast, we've we've touched a lot on the theme of like healthcare is more than just physical health. There's a lot of other factors that play into somebody's overall wellness. Um, it's economic, it's social, it's um, racial disparity, it's all sorts of things. So um, I love that Hardbound takes a multifaceted approach in kind of securing those elements and allowing people to to live their healthiest lives. Does being a federally qualified healthcare center kind of impact the kind of care we can provide at Howard Brown? Would we like to be able to do more? Um, or are we kind of consistent in this uh, primary care arena? There, there are limits. Certainly, I think the, the reimbursement that we receive through being a federally qualified health center does not allow us to do a kind of comprehensive set of services. So we don't get reimbursed for some of our social services, mm-hmm. for, for some of our groups, for some of the ways that we support patients and communities. We do it anyway, but, it, but we're not getting paid directly for those services. Gotcha. So that's a challenge. I think the, the, the whole infrastructure for federally qualified health centers 
is also kind of calibrated uh, on patients who generally are pretty well. And so there's a big focus on maternal and child health. And, and though there can be complications for pregnant women or children, those are really a minority of cases. So, you know, where Howard Brown sees a high number of patients that have chronic medical conditions like HIV or hepatitis or diabetes. And so that, in, in some cases, we, you know, those are patients with chronic medical conditions require a more intensive kind of care plan than the federally qualified health system is designed to cover. So, so that is a challenge as well. You know, our you know, patients that have chronic medical conditions just need more regular, consistent access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. And many of these systems are not designed for that level of need. So that, that can be a challenge. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that kind of leads into my next question. Uh, we touched on it a little bit. What, what sets Howard Brown Health apart from either other federally qualified health centers or just anywhere else you would receive medical care as a whole? I know it's a big question. Yeah. I know, and it's kind of everything, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're different in a lot of different ways, but... Uh, well, I think the, the hallmark of Howard Brown is, you know, we were founded by medical students who were part of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association and really saw an enormous need for screening, STI screening, and healthcare services and behavioral health services that are LGBT-affirming. And so, you know, kind of that is how the organization started. I think today we really recognize that, that it, it is really important to our patients that we be LGBT-affirming, but the kind of the core of the mission is responding to the needs of patients and communities that face stigma and discrimination. And where stigma and discrimination and kind of lack, you know, lack of social capital, which is kind of an academic term, mm-hmm to determine folks that are being discriminated, that are being, that have these obstacles, uh, artificial obstacles because of their identities, because in our case, gender expression and sexual orientation, but we also recognize that uh, nationality, you know, language, you know, kind of the language you speak, as well as race, ethnicity, and your economic status can be ways that people are also discriminated against and also stigmatized in healthcare. And so really getting at accessing care or creating care services for people that are facing stigma discrimination that may include gender identity or sexual orientation, but may not, is really at the core of our mission. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we provide affirming LGBTQ services, but our mission is to support individuals that, but for Howard Brown would not receive affirming care, period. Mm-hmm. And so that's really pushed us to go south and far north and west and deepen our commitments in communities of color and, and try to find those areas of the city where there's enormous pockets of need and meet that need. And in some cases, that's direct LGBT services, but in many cases, it's just individuals have never had a primary care physician and 
and have chronic medical conditions and chronic needs and trying to and trying to meet those needs. So now that we're in this era of COVID, it's kind of flipped the healthcare system uh, on its head and really kind of acted as a crucible to our healthcare system and that people are at the highest levels of need they've ever been. How has Howard Brown fared over the past, I guess, three years now um, with the pandemic in terms of staffing levels, keeping people, you know, motivated, but also finding uh, the people in the community that need us most and, and, and uh, delivering vaccines and everything. Give me a broad overview. How, how, how have we done? Is it, you know, how are things going? No, I'm enormously proud of the contributions that Howard Brown and the staff of Howard Brown have made to responding to the pandemic. I think from the early 2020, when we, we started to understand, you know, going into lockdown and understanding this, this pandemic that we were facing, Howard Brown really turned to its historical roots responding to the AIDS crisis and mining its expertise in infection control, as well as community mobilization around public health. And so we were first in the state to do contact tracing for people affected by COVID. We significantly ramped up early on COVID testing. We adopted telehealth strategies. We immediately started to beef up our personal protective equipment so that staff would be safe and putting in place some physical distancing rules and have continued. You know, last year was really the the rollout of vaccines. And so Howard Brown really took on the mantle to deliver community public health strategies in many ways, because we've we've been in this situation, you know, 40 years ago, responding to AIDS, you know, which was equally mysterious, equally scary, and many of our many of our patients who didn't survive the early days of AIDS, you know, wish there had been a robust, strong response to the early days of the AIDS pandemic, and so we really wanted to do that and do it in the communities that needed it the most. So we set up partnerships with organizations on the West side. We mounted mobile testing uh, and then vaccination. And so we have a lot to be proud of. I mean, we, we were responsible for helping document the burgeoning epidemic on the West side before really public health authorities had any data from the West side. And we have vaccinated to date, uh, we've administered over 70,000 wow. doses of COVID vaccines. And I think our testing, our cumulative testing numbers are also 80 to 90,000 tests provided. It has, it has been very difficult because even though we changed the whole model, we, we put a big focus on turning the tide on COVID, particularly in 2020. COVID is here to stay, uh, meeting in-person care needs. And many of, even though we were doing telehealth, many of the needs could not be met with telehealth. Mm. And so now we're, we're, you know, we're trying to figure out this new normal. And, you know, with, with the spikes, with variants, it's very complicated. And we've also, you know, we, you know, a lot of people, in 2020, 
did what they were asked to do, which is to, you know, lock down, to limit, you know, crowds, to stay at home as much as possible. And that really helped, but people had needs, you know, and particularly our patients with chronic medical conditions, they need access to their care teams. And so we saw a lot of patients come back last year. And so demand was very high. And meeting that demand has been, has been difficult. It just kind of came all at once, you know, in the summer when we saw the early effects of the, the vaccine campaigns and before, uh, uh, you know, the, the latest variant. So, you know, kind of keeping up with that has been stressful. It's been hard on the workforce because there's been so much change. And, and, and it's been hard to have any predictability. But I think that's anybody that's living through COVID. Yeah. I mean, everything changes at a drop of a hat. And so that is very stressful. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's very, you know, like for, you know, anybody in Chicago that has a child in Chicago public schools, you know, they announced closures at 11 p.m., mm-hmm. you know, three weeks ago. And that was really stressful on, on parents. You know, what do you do and how do you arrange childcare, you know, with that, with scarcely any notice? So those kinds of things have been difficult, not just on our workforce, but on our patients, on our communities. And I think everybody's carrying a, a piece of trauma from this pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And we'll continue to do so. Yeah, I, I love, um, and it's a, a story I've been learning more and more about, about uh, our legacy and how it kind of has applied to our response to the pandemic, going back from the AIDS epidemic and, you know, leaning into this one, it's like, well, we've, we've done this in, in a few ways before. So it, it's not um, a response that's unfamiliar, um, but it's uh, it's been kind of cool to see that legacy. And you kind of leaned into my next question of like, how do we balance this desire to reopen, so to speak, to kind of get back to a new normal, but also the need to protect public health? Um, I know everybody in the public health sector is kind of walking this tightrope between allowing people to quote unquote get back to normal life um, but also knowing that this is a huge health risk for a, a big portion of our population. How do you, you know, how do you walk that tightrope? How do you, how do you handle that? We're certainly in 2022 way, we're better off than we were in the early days of the pandemic in so many material ways. I mean, having in Chicago, 70% of the population vaccinated and 40 or 50% uh, I don't know if it's as high as 50%, but a, a portion with a booster is an enormous gain. Even though the latest variant has been spreading rapidly across the city, it's not causing severe illness and death. And so we, we've already made an enormous leap forward. And we still, you know, most of the individuals that are in intensive care or admitted in the hospital with COVID are unvaccinated. And so there's still a huge imperative to persuade people who, who've not gotten vaccinated about the benefits and to also disseminate boosters. And then, you know, kind of the try and true preventative steps that we've learned, you know, everybody's become a little expert, you know, mini expert in how to stem kind of this epidemic from mm-hmm. spreading. Uh, all of those are still are still worth practicing. Like, I think face coverings are going to be with us for a very long time. Some amount of crowd control, you know, uh, 
limiting, um, you know, protecting the, the most vulnerable. So people in long-term care facilities, older adults, people with autoimmune disease. So I think, I think we're learning how to live with COVID and we're going to continue to. And we, and we probably will see more and more of our friends and family also affected directly by COVID. Hopefully it will, even if it causes illness, it, hopefully it will not be so severe that they have to be hospitalized or put on a respirator. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't envy the, anybody in a position of responsibility when it comes to kind of having to juggle all of that. It's, it's um, certainly a, a huge responsibility, but kind of zooming out away from COVID, with, when it comes to healthcare, it kind of seems like we're, we're keeping a lot of different plates in the air when it comes to serving different communities uh, and fulfilling um, different services for people. So um, there, you know, a, a big plate spinning right now is COVID, but there's a lot of other things on the table. And I know Howard Brown, um, we just made a or a debuted our new strategic plan for the next couple of years. How do you formulate a plan going forward and, and decide where to allocate resources and what what our, what our goals and, and our um, priorities are when it comes to planning for an organization as large as Howard Brown Health? Well, certainly the pandemic slowed us down. So we wrapped up our strategic plan, our last strategic plan in early 2020, and we're in the process of updating it when the pandemic began. We had to put our planning on pause, and I'm glad that we did. I mean, I think it really helped us create a solid plan for 2021 and you know through 2024 i think we 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 took many of the things that we had learned responding to covid into the plan and also went back to kind of our roots so you know we we built the plan around kind of five big impact areas and delivering on the unique needs of LGBTQ plus population is the first impact area. It's kind of why we were created, where we have special attributes to, to do a good job in that area. And there's a lot of growth area. You know, LGBTQ populations are still, at least our health needs, there's a lot that's still not known in the scientific literature, as well as kind of the best ways of meeting those needs. So we have a whole bank of work there that we're interested in pursuing. We want to integrate our service lines so that behavioral health and primary care and dental services can support each other for kind of a total person, total, total person care model. So that's another impact area. We're interested in building our infrastructure so that we can continue to do this work for decades and generations to come. So that's another impact area. And then we, you know, we really identified our core strength in preventative health and public health. And so continuing to, to work on preventative care is another important area. And then we are in really diverse communities across Chicago. And we want to be a good neighbor. We want to really draw our talent, our staff from the areas where we have clinics and be, be a supporter of local leaders in their kind of asset building activities in the neighborhoods. And so getting really local is the fifth impact area. So I think we really thought about 
not only where we were pre-COVID, but also what we learned during COVID in developing that, that three-year plan. That sounds awesome. I just moved here in June, and this is the first healthcare organization I've ever encountered that um, has such a legacy of, of care for um, historically disenfranchised groups. And I think back to like my family practice in small town, West Michigan. For, for organizations like that, that don't maybe have a legacy of the kind of care that Howard Brown provides, but, but want to, but want to offer socially competent healthcare, what first steps would you give to, you know, uh, uh, a practitioner who, who wants to kind of do this kind of work, but maybe doesn't have the kind of community or organization set up to do that? Sure, though, it's a great question. You know, the, the mission of the organization is to help LGBTQ people improve their health and realize their full potential for themselves and their families and minimize, you know, the obstacles uh, around health care. That, that may impede them in, in living their full lives. And so we do that by providing healthcare services directly, but we also do that by educating and advocating with healthcare systems. So we have a division called ERA, Division for Education, Research, and Advocacy, mm-hmm. and it does exactly those three things. And our education division focuses on training of nurses and doctors and allied healthcare professionals in systems all over the Midwest, and now has a new partnership with the American Medical Association to actually provide training on you know, LGBTQ cultural competency and proper pronouns and why LGBT health and what are some of the unique needs of LGBTQ people. And it's it may not, you know, for it may be pretty basic for some healthcare providers, but many of the folks that we're training are starting from zero and they've really not thought about their patient panels as having sexual a sexual orientation or gender identity. And so they're learning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's helping them, you know, be more culturally competent with their LGBTQ patients who they may not recognize are LGBTQ as well as their allies, you know, their siblings and friends and partners and parents. So, you know, we're excited about that work because not every LGBTQ person is going to access care at Howe Brown, and that's not the model. It's really raising the bar for all boats, you know, for, for the whole healthcare sector. I love that. That fed right into my next question of, what, you know, how, what, it, what can we do as a society to encourage the development of culturally competent healthcare workers across the country? And, and, and you said that, uh, our Center for Research, um, Education, Research, and Advocacy, to kind of serve as a model for how to, to educate our healthcare workers, um, to get them culturally competent so that the need, needs of the LGBTQ plus uh, community is met, whether it's Chicago or, or farther, farther away in the country. Are there other organizations like us that are doing similar kind of education when it comes to queer health care? Or are we kind of blazing a trail when it comes to that? There are a few, uh, you know, in the larger cities across the U.S., there are peer organizations that look very much like Howard Brown. Mm-hmm. So in Boston, in New York, in San Francisco, in L.A., and in Houston, in Baltimore, in D.C., there are peer organizations that are doing similar activities. They're providing primary care, sexual health, gender-affirming services, services that are affirming LGBT identity, and doing education 
advocacy and research. We talk to them often. They're all private nonprofits. Some of them are fairly qualified health centers, some are not. Uh, but, but by and large, pursuing you know, similar trajectories, you know, trying to meet the needs of LGBT people in their communities and learning from that experience so they can disseminate their findings, their models, their research to help grow the field. And there's a lot to grow. I mean, you know, there's in LGBTQ health, the biggest area of, of scientific literature is around HIV. Hmm. And that's great, but there are so many more issues that affect LGBTQ people. And then there's then HIV, and there's you know parts you know populations in those letters that have scarcely any attention at all, like the bisexual community, lesbian community, and then you have ally communities like intersex, which is also very an area of medicine and a community that's poorly understood. And so those are also themes that we're trying to, to raise the bar as an organization to do a better job reaching people who are intersex or identify as bisexual or are cisgender women are often neglected in health systems, particularly in LGBTQ spaces. So we're, we're interested in all that because it's a very diverse, diverse community, not only around genders, around sexual orientation, but then you layer on that different socioeconomic and national and racial ethnic identities. And we're, we're very, very diverse, you know, community, really. And, the, and the, the thing that, even though we're so diverse, I think the thing that ties us all together is an experience, a historical experience of discrimination and stigma. That You put that perfectly. I, I think, from my point of view, it seems like Howard Brown is really well poised to kind of not capitalize, but um, to kind of grow and expand given the sort of turning point it feels like we're at when it, as a society when it comes to um, sexuality and, and gender and everything. I think I've seen an enormous shift even in just representation in pop culture and, and politics and stuff of, of these kind of issues that our, our community has dealt with for a while kind of, kind of coming into the forefront. So um, it seems like an organ organization like Howard Brown Health is really well suited to, to bring that conversation even farther um, to kind of extend that proper care, proper health care to these communities that need it most. Um, we are approaching a little bit of the end of our time here. We've touched on a lot, a lot of big ideas, a lot of big topics. I know we have our strategic plan for the next four years. If you could zoom even farther into the future, 15, 20 years, Howard Brown has had such a legacy over our history, but we've also grown a lot. Where do you see us headed um, into the future past our, uh, our frameworks and, and what we have for the immediate future? Well, we're, we're, we're aiming to do a couple of difficult things. You know, we want to make our system of care as high quality as possible as patient-friendly as possible, as accessible as possible. And that's a tall order, but an essential one, really for our mission around health equity, because we want patients and communities that rely on Howard Brown to receive the best and not just have, you know, not just rely on Howard Brown because we're LGBT competent or affirming, but also to know that the quality of care is as good as anywhere else they might turn to for care. So that's a big imperative. We're working really hard 
to improve our systems and the way we, you know, schedule appointments, you know, um, communicate with patients, meet their needs. So that's a big, a big tall order, but we're excited about that. We want to continue to build kind of the services that, that meet the unique needs of LGBTQ people. And, you know, that can include really a whole host of things. You know, we're interested in expanding our reproductive health services that are LGBTQ competent. And we're seeing more transgender men and lesbians that are interested in reproductive health, right? interested in expanding their families. Mm -hmm. And we see more gay men who are adopting or going to surrogacy. So thinking about the whole family is a big part of our mission. We're really responding to, you know, the tragedy of so many LGBT youth, LGBTQ young people that face housing insecurity and, and largely because of homophobia and transphobia. You know, their families of origin, their schools, their communities are hostile to their identities and in many cases putting them at, at risk by making them homeless. So we're interested in responding to that and, you know, we want to expand our network so that we're, we continue to be in the neighborhoods at highest need. So really have a big focus on the south side where we have three clinics already, but we're out of space. So we're interested in growing that network and, you know, continuing to secure the agency so that we can continue to help communities for the next several generations. And so that's putting, you know, putting in the infrastructure so that the organization is not just meeting, you know, the needs now, but is secure for the future. So it's a tall order, but um, I'm excited about it. And, um, and I think, you know, I think the big, the big system is sort of not that interesting to our patients. What's interesting to them is kind of what happens when they have a visit, you know. I mean, we hear mm -hmm. so much from patients that compare their experience at Howard Brown with, you know, other experiences in healthcare, they've been, frankly, traumatizing. You know, we hear from trans patients in other systems, they've been gawked at, they, you know, they, they've, you know. Been misgendered. Misgendered, yeah, people come around and want to look at their genitals. I mean, it's just, you know, they, they, they have enormous, they've faced enormous trauma in healthcare, and which has resulted in a lot of, transgender, non-binary people foregoing healthcare because they can't find affirming high-quality care. We hear from, we've heard from lesbians who tell us that they've never received a pap smear because they were erroneously told that if they're not having sex with men, they don't need one, which is complete bullshit. You know, we hear from gay men who've never had an anal pap and there's a high, you know, statistics show that there's very high rates of HPV infection among gay men that can result in rectal or colon cancer. And so, you know, screening for signs of precancerous cells is actually good preventative healthcare. So things like that, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's those, you know, I think that what our community cares about is those interactions more than the big agency kind of mm -hmm. how we're positioning ourselves for the future, but we want to be there to help, you know, people across their life's 
span, you know, from young to adult to older adult, and then, you know, future generations of LGBT people that will need high quality care. Yeah. I, I love how the scope of the services that we offer are kind of blossoming along with populations that we serve. So in some of the research we did for uh, our video about World AIDS Day, we were discussing how queer healthcare is kind of moving into geriatrics, which is historically a field that hasn't really um, been populated by queer healthcare because of, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic or, or just um, being disserviced in, in healthcare in general. Um, and, and also we've, you know, been seeing an uptick in, in uh, adoptions and surrogacy um, by, by queer families or, you know, whatever the situation may be. So, so the, the scope of healthcare is kind of expanding as the populations that we serve um, are, are, are growing and kind of um, aging. And, and I love that Harvard is able to move along with that and, and be adaptable because, I mean, certainly nobody saw COVID coming, but it's nice to know that for the future, whether it's a, a unexpected pandemic or just the eventual societal shifts that happen, um, that Howard Brown is well positioned to, to handle whatever may be coming. So I, I hope so. I think so. We, we, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this, the unique healthcare needs of LGBTQ people, and those are real, but we also deliver just a lot of care that doesn't people would not associate with lgbtq health but like responding to patients needs who have diabetes hypertension depression you know or uh, dental care you know dental cleaning dental hygiene so these are also kind of core their good health you know and it's not it's these do not correlate with a person's gender expression or gender identity or sexual orientation, but, but they're essential. They're essential to good health. And we also have ample evidence that by, every, by most measures, LGBTQ people far, fare much worse than their non-LGBT counterparts in terms of the magnitude of impact for some of these health conditions. And that has nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with stigma and discrimination. And, uh, and so we see it play out in the statistics. The statistics tell an elegant story about the impact of society still reckoning with, you know, its LGBTQ population. And we pay the price with poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to change that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how Howard Brown grows and changes and develops and what kind of services we offer over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, hopefully. I, I know in interviewing other people, guests have said that, you know, ideally Howard Brown isn't needed uh, in that healthcare, wherever you're getting it, is LGBTQ plus affirming. It is, you know, it can cater to each individual's trauma, whether that's related to their gender or their sexuality. But, you know, as for right now, it's not a reality. So I, I, I see Howard Brown sticking around for, for a while. Closing comments. Anything I didn't touch on that you kind of want to impart to our audience on behalf of Howard Brown? I know that's a big ask because there's a lot you could say. But Well, yeah, I, I will say, you know, Howard Brown is here for the geographic communities. And, you know, for, for the communities we're, that we're in and for really anyone in that community that needs a good primary care experience. So it actually has nothing to do with identity. And we have thousands of straight patients getting care of Howard Brown. 
because they're looking for affirming care. And so it's not really an agenda to, you know, it's really about what the patient needs. What does yeah. the patient need? Now, for our straight patients that do receive care at Howard Brown, they're entering a space that's unapologetically LGBTQ affirming. And the assumption, we flip the assumption. So, you know, most of us were, you know, walk through the world and enter a place like a healthcare setting, and there's a presumption that you're straight. At Howard Brown, it's flipped. The presumption is that you're not. Mm-hmm. But it's not, but that's not an impediment on you receiving care. And we're trying to we're trying to model the world that we want to live in. One where, you know, who your partner is or who your sexual partners are, or, you know, what your family looks like is of no consequence on the quality of care you'll receive. I love that. I love that. David, thank you so much for coming. We might have to have you back in the future uh, because there's so much to talk about. But in the meantime, if you guys are curious about um, more about Howard Brown and uh, the frameworks and strategic plan that we talked about, you can go to www.howardbrown.org. But in the meantime, David, thank you for coming. Thank you. All right, everyone, that has been our episode today with our CEO and president, David, talking about all things federally qualified health centers, the state of healthcare in America, and how Howard Brown is navigating the pandemic. Uh, if you need more information, you can go to www.howardbrown.org.